I did not grow up with anyone around me who had special needs. So I had no clue how to proceed. We had different meetings with the geneticists to sort of talk us through some stuff. Um, but really, I, I just was clueless and kind of terrified. And so again, my faith comes to step in. And that was incredibly important for helping me navigate all of these questions and concerns and feelings of guilt. Hello, and welcome to the Mothermaker Podcast, a podcast featuring conversations with artists who are also mothers. This is episode three, and today I'll be sharing my conversation with artist Mandy Blankenship. My name is Emma Coy, and I'm a musician and performance artist in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I live with my husband, Jason, and our three-year-old son, Henry. Mothermaker started out as a website. I launched it on Mother's Day of 2017 with a vision of mothers having something inspiring to read while nursing or feeding their babies. Now I'm publishing these interviews in audio form as well, right here on the Mother Maker podcast. If you like what you're hearing, I'd be so grateful if you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, and even better, tell a friend. Today I'm sharing my conversation with quilter and textile artist Mandy Blankenship. This interview was recorded on November 13th, 2018. While I've been following Mandy's work for some time, I hadn't realized until we spoke for this interview that she is a mom of a child with special needs. Her daughter, Etta, has Turner Syndrome, which is a syndrome that occurs when a female baby is missing one of her X chromosomes. After a four-year battle with infertility, Mandy found out about her daughter's diagnosis early on in her high-risk pregnancy, which ended in a premature delivery at 34 weeks. Mandy has truly been through a lot, and she has generously shared many of the details of her pregnancies, births, and postpartum journeys of both of her kids. Mandy is adamant that her creative nature is ingrained in who she is and cannot be separated from her. And while she's not always working on making and selling her work, she finds other ways to be creative in her daily life. I'd love to know if any of you out there are parents of kids with special needs. How did you prepare yourself for this massive change in your life? And what systems have you had to put in place to make sure that you can maintain a sense of self while caring so deeply for others? There are lots of ways to get in touch with me and the Mothermaker team. You can send me an email at emma at mothermaker.co. We're also on Facebook at Mothermaker Co. and Instagram at Mothermaker. Also, be sure to sign up for our newsletter by going to mothermaker.co and clicking newsletter in the upper right-hand corner. If you're a mother artist looking for a community, please join our Facebook group, Mothermaker Artists Raising Humans. So now, here's my conversation with artist Mandy Blankenship. I tried specifically to put on makeup today. Like, I never wear makeup. And I'm like, Joshua, I'm not sure... I don't because I didn't remember if it was going to be like a video chat or like a video interview. And I'm like, let's just make sure that like my hair's done and I have on some mascara. Please. Well, um, I'm sure you can appreciate that. I just got out of the shower and I have well, wet hair. Okay. You look yeah. great. You look awesome. You look great too. So where do you live? We are in Greenville, South Carolina, but I am from Dallas, Texas. And I don't know if you know any Texans, but we are all very proud of being from Texas. My husband lived in Houston for the first eight years of his life, and it's still very much a part of who he is. (laughs) Yeah. I don't like Houston at all, though. I will say 
it's got some things going for it that as an adult, I'm like, oh, I should go visit there. It doesn't sound totally terrible anymore. <laughs> when I was a kid, Dallas sites and Houston's, we don't mix. <laughs> I understand. And then Austin is a whole nother world, right? Austin is magical. Yeah. It's a, it's a great place. But my family's from, my parents are from San Antonio, which is truly the best, I think, if you're going to pick. Yes. Yes. So you are a quilter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I broadened that up a little while ago, though quilting is mostly what I do, textile art, because I started to experiment with some other kind of sculptural things. And then after I made this giant, so Sashiko is a Japanese way of quilting. Um, and so that's mostly what I do and or all of what I do quilting wise. And so I decided to make a Sashiko tree. It was this four foot tall expansive thing for a neighborhood jewelry store up the road and I'm so glad I did it and then after I did that I was like nope never doing that again <laughs> I was it's so drawn out and it was actually one of the early things I did when Etta was a baby I'm like I totally did that when she was like an infant I can't believe I did that <laughs> that's fun to look back and say I thought I was doing nothing but actually I was getting a lot done yep yeah yep so when did you start sewing? When I was a little girl. The first things I remember making were some doll clothes for this little like stuffed Hawaiian doll I had when I was about six. And my mom had an old Singer sewing machine that had the foot pedal, you know, the rocking back and forth one. Um, but she, I think her, she, they had an electric machine in it. So anyways, I got really interested in, in making doll clothes for this thing. And then I started quilting, kind whatever I thought was quilting. It wasn't really. It was mostly pillow making. <laughs> um, shortly after that, and I used to make things for my dog. And then, yeah, so really just when I was a little girl up till I was about 12 or so. And then I took a long break and did a whole lot of other kind of art um, and came back into sewing when I was in my early thirties. And again, it was, that was making quilts for a friend's baby. Um, cause somebody got pregnant and was having a babe. And I thought this is something I can do. I don't have money, but I have skills. <laughs> mm -hmm. What kind of art were you doing in the meantime? I'm actually trained as a photographer. I went to a really great, it was a K through 12 private school. Um, and we had just incredible art teachers. So I was exposed to everything from ceramics and, you know, pottery to, I don't know, experimental sort of Dada wood sculpture. Um, and then I got into photography when I was 16 and was in the, the lab, you know, doing black and white gelatin silver prints all through high school and then college. It was actually my minor in college. My major was English because at some point I decided I don't want to be a starving artist, so I'll be an academic and I'll go. <laughs> You'll make a lot more money right? that way. That's funny. So I did like copywriting and all kinds of stuff for this nonprofit while like assisting the president and then, you know, weaseled my way into doing photography for them. I worked for a very short time as a wedding photographer, which I hated. So then kind of burned out on photography and Joshua and I got married in 2007 and I was like, Hey, I want to be an artist. And he said, that's great. I'm 100% in favor of that. Just don't suck at it. And I was like, done. I can, <laughs> I can make that happen. And then I started experimenting again, trying to figure out, you know, what medium makes sense to me and came back around to sewing. 
Did you start sewing before you decided to start a family? Kind of. Yes. We knew from the beginning that we wanted to have kids. And so we thought, all right, let's wait a couple years. So we waited two years after getting married and thought, mm, let's wait another year. <laughs> and uh, waited three years, just started, you know, like, okay, we're going to do whatever we can do to try to have a family and then actually struggled with infertility for four years. And I, you know, the whole time, you know, I'm seeing doctors, making sure there's nothing wrong with me, making sure nothing's wrong with Joshua. And all of the time, you know, I'm making things because I don't know how else to live. Um, you know, creativity and the artist's life to me is totally integrated. Like I don't, I don't know another way to, cause it's the way that I think yeah. I, I believe like if you have this in you, like it's just going to come out in all different sorts of ways. So, and then there was actually a short period of time in 2013 when we had a shop. Um, we live in this neighborhood called Brandon in the village of West Greenville. And it is an old textile mill village. And so there's like a cute little kind of main drag where you have like coffee shops and restaurants and, you know, really artist studios back when we first moved here. So we had a shop for a year and that's when I sort of rediscovered quilting. And so I'm sharing space with a guy who makes jeans. He was giving me all of his scraps. So that's how I got back into quilting was just using Bill's scraps. And then things really took off from there. It was like kind of a I don't know, there's like a million different waves of this resurgence of like the handmade stuff, you know, I mean, right. Renegade Craft Fair, Indie Craft Parade we have here, all that stuff had been going for a while. Um, but it just seemed totally ludicrous to me that people would be excited about me quilting. Because <laughs> I thought this is the most slow going, unglamorous thing that you can do. Uh, but here I am, you know, sticking a needle in and out of fabric by hand. <laughs> um, but people were really excited about it. And so we had a lot of traction with those things. So how many kids do you have? We have two. Two kids. But you had a long time of trying and infertility before that. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what that was like for you and yeah. when you finally were able to get pregnant, what your expectation was? So my mom's the youngest of nine kids. My dad is the oldest of five kids. My sister has three now. Infertility is not something I had heard anyone talk about. Not being able to start a family like was not on my radar at all. I am a Christian and have a, a really, you know, strong faith. Um, so that was something that really helped guide me through a lot of, you know, our journey with infertility and even calling it infertility felt like a failure in some respects, but it, you know, became a part of our story. And it was something part of another part of what I do. I'm a textile artist, but I write, um, a lot. So as I'm writing for myself and then I ended up writing for like our church on their blog and stuff about this journey, it became incredibly important you know, as a sort of personal therapy. And then also, wow, there's a community of women who in that season, it was like taboo to talk about infertility and that struggle and, you know, guilt or shame or any of the stuff that can go along with that. So it was actually really sweet because there was a group of women that we ended up walking through that together um, and being a support for one another. It is like your hopes get built up 
every month. But man, if I was a day later, a couple days late, it was like my hopes would get so built up. And then I would start. And then it was like, I just got hit by a truck. Mm. You know, I mean, it was just this emotional roller coaster, all the while feeling a deep, incredibly, totally illogical conviction, um, you know, from the outside looking in that we're going to have children. And I do not feel comfortable doing uh, infertility drugs. And I'm like, other people can do that. That's great. I like truly no judgment. I just didn't want to do it for me. I had responded so badly to birth control when we were first married that I just thought I can't have synthetic hormones in my body. It will drive me crazy. And so it was again, this roller coaster of like, we're pregnant. We're not, we're pregnant. We're not for 48 months. And that's how you end up looking at it is it's every single month is a new opportunity. You know, at some point I finally ended up really tracking my cycle Um, you know, and there are apps and there's a fantastic book out there called taking charge of your fertility. Um, and it's really great for women who are trying to get pregnant or if you're trying to prevent pregnancy naturally, or, Hey, you're about to start menopause. I mean, it really has the whole spectrum of seasons for women. So that really taught me a ton about how to pay attention to my own cycle and what was going on. And a key, key, key inhibitor of getting pregnant is stress. And so that was the season where we had our shop and wow, I was super stressed and we were involved with our business association and all these different things were going on. And so finally I stepped back from a lot of those responsibilities. We went to Palm Springs for our seventh anniversary and came back and found out we were pregnant. Wow. Um, And so it was like a miracle. It felt like, ah, okay, we're finally here. And then my pregnancy with Etta ended up being really high risk. High risk how? Um, I had some bleeding pretty early on. I don't. I'm, your listeners are moms. Yeah, so everybody. This of, is like hopefully none of this is too graphic. There's um, no such thing as TMI anymore. Right? Okay. Good. Um, yeah, I feel that way. <laughs> and uh, I also think like that's why we do this to to talk about it and get the stories heard, right? right. So. Yeah, totally. So I had some bleeding um, early on in my pregnancy, about six weeks in, go to the midwives to, you know, make sure everything's okay. And they do a sonogram and, you know, baby's got a really strong heartbeat. And the midwife looked at me, she said, okay, that is a great sign, you know, to have a, a strong heartbeat like that, like something would have to severely go wrong for this pregnancy to end in a miscarriage. So I was like, awesome, great, keep going. Nine weeks in, I have more bleeding. And this was like, whoa, this felt like a period. Um, and so it was really scary. So I go back into the doctor this time to maternal fetal medicine. And, um, you know, it's a more in-depth sonogram, see the baby, see everything seemingly as it should be, but they recommend hey, let's go ahead and do a genetic test. Up until that point, I had decided, nope, not going to do one because I know we're supposed to have kids and there's nothing that a genetic test is going to show me that's going to change my mind. Like I'm going to follow this pregnancy as far as I possibly can. But then at that point, it was like, I've had all this bleeding, like, you know what, more information is better. So why not? So we had the genetic test done around 12 weeks, we get the information and it shows that this baby is a girl and she most likely has something called Turner syndrome. Um, and so that is like a genetic anomaly where every person gets 23 chromosomes from each parent. 
that 23rd pair of chromosomes determine your sex. XX is a girl, XY is a boy, and Etta, my daughter, only has one X. So 99% of girls with Turner syndrome, and they're always girls, 99% of them are miscarried or stillborn. And so I'm now given this information of like, this probably isn't going to go well. So what do you want to do? And so I, I could have an amniocentesis or a CVS test, which would confirm 100%, yes, this is what's going on. But again, we've just walked through 48 months of infertility. This is my first pregnancy. And I just said, nope, I'm not having any other tests done. I don't want to do anything to jeopardize this pregnancy because there's a risk of miscarriage if you go more in-depth test. So they said, that's fine. But now you've got to come in for like regular sonograms and other you know things because they want to make sure her heart is developing normally and her kidney function is where it's supposed to be and so is the bleeding related to Turner syndrome? I think so. I mean, any any sort of bleeding, like, so you can have implantation bleeding, which is actually normal, um, but that wouldn't have happened at that six-week mark. That would have happened much, much sooner. So it's a, it's a sign that there's something else going on. But some women, you know, have some spotting right. and bleeding during a pregnancy. So it's not necessarily a sign that there's something catastrophic going on. That must have been kind of knock you back a little bit after all of that time waiting and trying and now there's potentially something wrong how did you sort of prepare yourself for the labor and delivery but also for being a new mom number one and a new mom to a child with possible special needs yeah exactly I did not grow up with anyone around me who had special needs so I had no clue how to proceed. We had different meetings with the geneticists to sort of talk us through some stuff. Um, but really, I, I just was clueless and kind of terrified. And so again, my faith comes to step in. And that was incredibly important for helping me navigate all of these questions and concerns and feelings of guilt. And when I come up against something like a medical diagnosis, specifically, I just go deep dive into research mode. Um, cause for me, information helps like dispel fear. You know, it wasn't easy. I definitely saw some stories that made Turner syndrome feel like just the scariest thing that could happen. Um, but at the same time, like just feeling and believing that the Lord was telling me like, she's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. But I did want to familiarize myself with, you know, what can happen. So um, I ended up delivering at 34 weeks due to preeclampsia. Previous to that, we took like Bradley birthing classes. So my sister at that point had delivered two children unmedicated, one in the hospital, one in a birthing center. Um, here in Greenville, we have the midwives that I work with also partner with the hospital. So I could choose to give birth in their birthing center or at the hospital. We had kind of two different birthing classes going on one with the midwives that was like called centering and it was a group thing. And then our Bradley classes are like, you know, originally husband coached childbirth. Um, so, you know, all about like different positions and exercising and all the sort of like granola earthy stuff that you would hope, you know, Ina Mae Gaskin is like patron saint of all this stuff. Um, 
I'm so grateful that I, I took those classes. The Bradley class, our teacher was so amazing. And one of the last exercises we did with her, where we had these cards that had, you know, on one side, like unmedicated birth on the other side, it showed like epidural, you know, on one side, it, it said vaginal delivery on the other side, it said C-section. So you had all these cards faced, faced up for what you wanted. What was your birth plan? What were you hoping for? And then she says, okay, you ha- you've lost control of one option flip it over to the other side. What's the one that you could handle the most not being able to choose? Okay, turn over three more. Okay, turn over three more. And that was such an incredible exercise because it was like a little prequel of like, you don't get to choose everything that you want. That's not how life works <laughs> in, case you, in case you hadn't figured it out. So we did that exercise and man, that was one of the things, and we still come back to that. of like, thank you, God, that <laughs> that happened. Cause it, it really showed me and Joshua, like, what do we care the most about in this birth experience? And so for me, it was a vaginal delivery and it was like, no narcotics, uh, no episiotomy. Um, and I forget what the other one was. We ended up basically with four things that were like, this is the best case scenario when you've lost control of everything else. So then, you know, night before, I end up going to the hospital. My blood pressure is a little bit high. They check it like three or four times. The midwife's like, yeah, you need to come back in the morning. Uh, we want to check your blood pressure again. I have no idea what that means. So Friday morning, we go back to the midwife and she goes, honey, okay, um, your blood pressure is still really high. You need to go across the street and go to the hospital. And I was like, what? I don't, what are you talking about? And can we, like, there's this coffee shop that we've been waiting to open in our neighborhood. Can we go to that first? And then she goes, no, you need to go to the hospital right now. You, I think you have preeclampsia. I had like never heard that word except for Downton Abbey. Yes. The television show because Sybil died from preeclampsia. The only time I've ever heard that word. And quite traumatically, right? Totally. And so I was just like, Sybil, you know, <laughs> and then I think, okay, so we drive across the street to the hospital. They do a ton of tests, end up telling me you're going to deliver in the next 24 to 48 hours. And I was like, what? You know, I'm 34 weeks pregnant, zero dilated, nothing, you know, and I'm thinking, I want this little baby, my, my Etta, my baby girl to have as much time in the womb as possible. She needs all the chance she can have to grow. And I had been told the week previous that one of our maternal fetal medicine appointments, like she's not growing like we would like to see. So if she doesn't gain some weight in the next few days here, we're going to have to induce just to make sure, you know, she can get fed outside the womb. So I'm already, you know, on heightened alert of like, let her stay, let her, let her be in there. Um, And then preeclampsia comes along and wow, that took all those choices out the window. So but I still was trying to have an unmedicated vaginal birth, kind of like clueless to the fact that preeclampsia means like you're done with that, like you're done. Um, so I, I didn't choose to have the epidural until more than 24 hours in. Um, and I even didn't choose to have the chemical uh, induction. I was trying to do a physical, have let them do a physical induction, which was, wow, that was painful. So finally, I'm on the Pitocin, I'm on everything. Um, And then when they did the epidural, man, that was just, thank God. Wow, I'm glad I chose that in the end. So she was so tiny, she came out between pushes. Etta was three pounds, 10 ounces. And I only got to hold her for like five minutes um, before they whisked her away to the NICU. 
And that was something that I like was deeply sad about for over a year. But, you know, we did end up bonding. I, I was able to breastfeed her normally. She was too little to breastfeed in the beginning. So it was like practice in the NICU, but mostly it was me in the pump. So I absolutely went through, you know, postpartum depression and really post-traumatic stress. And because it's not the first traumatic medical experience I had had. Um, I was hit by a car when I was 15 and in a coma for five days. And, you know, that was a whole nother story. Um, but, you know, it took a long time to realize, you know, what was going on emotionally for me after Etta, you know, was born. And, you know, she spent her first month in the NICU with us traveling back and forth and me pumping every two hours. And it's just like an incredibly hard road. Like I was just an incredibly hard road. And that looking back, like I don't, I don't have it as difficult as many mothers do who, who have a preemie. And then at the same time, I'm still like trying to figure out what is Turner syndrome? What is that going to mean for her? So all those sonograms I had, they were wanting to check her heart that it was developing normally. And she gets out of the womb and is in the NICU and they finally do the echocardiogram and her heart is like perfect. It's totally great. And, you know, most girls with Turner's are have an open heart surgery a lot really soon. And then, her, you know, her kidney function, they were really concerned about that. And her kidneys are great. She sees more, Edda sees more doctors than any kid I know. She's got an endocrinologist. She has a cardiologist. She has an orthopedist. She has um, the ophthalmologist, you know, all these different things going on. Um, but by and large, she is an incredibly healthy little girl. You know, her cardiologist was like, there is not a lot of research out there about girls with Turner syndrome who have normal hearts, but Etta does. And so she can play rugby if she wants to. And we were like, what? wants <laughs> <laughs> to go every, every two years to have her heart check. She will for the rest of her life. Amazing. And you just had to step up to the plate. That's what we have to do, right? Yeah. And that really is motherhood. I feel like whether or not like the dad's in the picture or a partner is in the picture, like you as the mother are the best advocate for your child. Nobody is going to care as much as you do. And so you do, you've got to, you've got to step up and it, it's probably terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's probably, you know, a host of circumstances you never thought you would have to deal with. Through all of that and the first year being so difficult, was your work a comfort for you or was it out of the picture? I think it was both. I mean, looking back and thinking about that Sasha Go tree that I made for the jewelry store, I'm like, that was a bold movie move because I, I went to them. They did not approach me. I said, Hey, you're in this neighborhood with a bunch of artists. Like let's collaborate. I'm an artist. I'm the neighborhood. So can, let me do this thing for you. And they were like, sure. Um, you know, and then I proceeded to work the next five months on it because it took way longer because, Hey, I'm a mom. I have a little girl and being a working mother is hard on its own. That is so hard. Being a stay at home working mom is like sometimes a joke. I mean, because the work you're doing is your children. You know, it seems like, wow, you know, my office is just in the next room or my studio, but like it's hard to work when there's screaming and it's lunchtime and nap time. And it was me in the pump for three months. And then when we finally figured out how to normally regularly breastfeed, that I just, that's all I did. Cause I'm like, I hate the pump. I have PTSD about the pump. <laughs> um, 
And so then I fed her every two hours until she was eight months old. So, and she, she took a long time to nurse. There was like, those are like 45 minute breastfeeding sessions. So I had like, you know, 30 to 45 minutes to figure out, do I want to shower or do I want to eat before it's time to feed her again? So yeah, so work was certainly non-existent for a lot of that time. And then other times, you know, Joshua, he had a commuting job at that time. So, you know, I didn't have him to lean on to sort of watch her when I needed to really get stuff done except at night. But then at some point I realized I've committed to this thing. I want to do it. I'm going to do it and I've got to make time for it. And so there were moments of, wow, this is who I am and I love this. And then there were other times of like, you know, what the hell have I gotten myself into? This is such a bad idea. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But we made it work. And so what kinds of things did you have to put in place to make sure that you could do your work? Having a room for my sewing machine or my sculpture, whatever I was working on at the time, just the physical space. But I mean, honestly, that was in the living room a lot. And I feel like motherhood is just juggling so much. You're if you're not juggling work and other things, you're juggling laundry and Like you're doing all of these things, Um, even if your husband is really involved. And I would say Joshua is super involved. Yeah, you're you're just finding the holes for when you can fit something in. So, yeah, I I think having a space for the sewing machine. But part of what I do with Sashiko is like it is a very low barrier of entry art form because you need fabric, a needle and thread. So you can take that with you places unless you're working on that like sculpture I was doing. How was your second pregnancy different? Total dream. Total surprise dream. And we do. We call Moses a dream baby because he's just a delight. Um, He was conceived the same month I weaned Etta. So I nursed her. I ended up nursing her for 21 months and then thought, whoa, I'm myself again. You know, like, this is great. My boobs are my own. Um, (laughs) And then we got pregnant. And I was in counseling at that point. I finally figured out something is going on emotionally that I need to deal with because I can't keep yelling at my husband and, you know, my daughter or myself. So um, I was in counseling and that was one of my last sessions with my therapist. She was like, I told her, I said, I might be pregnant, but I don't know yet. And she was like, how do you feel about that? And I was like, well, scared, but better like a lot better. And then that was my last counseling session. And then a couple of days later, I found out, yep, you are pregnant. And it was just so great. But my weight gain was very different with Moses. So with preeclampsia, they're thinking more and more like it's kind of determined at conception. And so I look back at the pictures of myself when I was pregnant with Etta and I thought, whoa, I was swollen the whole way through this thing. Like I can look back and say, yep, that was different. With Moses, I gained the same amount of weight, but it was like all in my belly. Like he was just a big boy and he sure enough was born almost nine pounds. (laughs) And I pushed him out unmedicated at the birthing center like I had hoped with Etta. And the whole time I'm like, why am I doing this? Like I have these ideals in my head, what is best. And my sister is just a warrior. I mean, she's just like, I used to say, you know, that if you can deliver, this is before I had kids. 
if you can deliver unmedicated, like you are Amazon, you know? And so that's what I have in my mind is this picture of Jenny, my sister as just this Amazon, you know, more your princess. And then I have Etta and I feel a ton of guilt and shame around the fact that, you know, I had to, she came so early, she's got special needs. Uh, I had to do the epidural, but then I was so grateful for the epidural. And then here I'm pushing Moses out and I'm like, what the, what am I doing? This is why, why have women been doing this for thousands of years? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was born and it was honestly, it was like five hours of hard labor. So it, I, I, it was great, you know, in retrospect, um, but then I wouldn't stop bleeding. So I had to go back to the hospital and I asked the midwife as she was driving me over there, I said, am I hemorrhaging? And she said, um, technically yes. <laughs> and so we get over there, ends up being just a small tear, um, that just wouldn't stop. And so, but at that point I'm like, you know what? I pushed this baby out unmedicated and that is it. I am not doing anything else unmedicated. You better put me under. And so I, you know, I've had a bunch of surgeries in my past, so I wasn't like, you know, that wasn't new. So sure enough, they put me under and I had just had the longest, worst recovery. They had to put a catheter in at like week three because my my bladder wasn't emptying the way it should because, hey, birth moves some things around in your insides. And so like my brain wasn't sending the signal to my body the way it was supposed to. So anyways, like going home with a newborn and a toddler and a catheter, a urine bag like hanging on you, that's no fun. Um, so yeah, so the newborn days of Moses were really not fun. And then Joshua ended up getting sick and had staph infection in his bloodstream uh, for six weeks before we figured out what was going on. So he had all these like unexplained fevers and it was just a ridiculously year of illness. And then my mother had open heart surgery and now my dad has cancer and Moses is 14 months old. But somehow we've come through all of this I don't know how, except by the grace of God. And I'm, I'm a much, I'm a much different person and I'm a much stronger person. And I never would have wished this on myself. Like, um, but at the same time, I'm really, really super grateful. And all the while art is there and it is a a way that I think it's the way that I process and it comes out in you know, the textiles and the writing are like my two favorites, but I don't have the luxury of doing that, you know, all the time. Like I, my kids do go to a school, you know, a couple times a week, but it's not every day. And then it's only for a few hours. If I had, if I was sending them to daycare every day, like a lot of working moms, you know, need to do to me, that just sounds totally luxurious. Like, Whoa, you just got gobs of time to think and to process and be, and like get in the zone to make stuff, but this is a really precious time with them that I do value, even though it's super hard. And so they're home with me the majority of the time. And so I can't always, sew. I can't always, you know, write, you know, when I need some quiet. So I've got to like bring that creative mindset to cooking and laundry. And I make some of my toiletries and some of my cleaners and, and that's an outlet as well. And we cloth diaper a lot of the time. Um, and then at some point I discovered, Oh, I can make the wipes too. So I'm trying to bring that creativity to all of these areas because I would suffocate without that. Mm -hmm. What do you hope for, for the future with that? 
as your kids get older. It would be very different if this was our income. I would rearrange a whole lot of things in my life. Um, and the kids would be in a daycare situation or a, a preschool situation much more consistently. I am not the breadwinner, the sole breadwinner in the family. My work sometimes makes money. Um, but the problem, you know, my original, one of the things I said early on is I didn't want to be a starving artist. And that's exactly what I turned out to be because I don't care about money. I mean, like I want it and I need it and I think it's incredibly useful, but my feelings aren't hurt if my work doesn't sell because I have to do this. I'm going to do it whether it makes money or not. Um, I value saying something through an artistic medium and it is any artistic medium that happens to be nearby. You know, I definitely am trained in certain things, but I will say, you know, photography with the thing that I pursued for a decade, that's Instagram right now. Like I don't, I have a really nice digital camera that I never get out because I just don't care. And there, that was a season of time and it's okay that that was a season of time. So, you know, right now the projects I'm working on is I'm making Etta some nightgowns. Um, I, have a little bit of experience in pattern making and I'm really incredibly opinionated about fabric. Um, and I am like appalled that like the majority of what you find in stores right now is polyester and specifically with flannel nightgowns. Like you cannot find a flannel nightgown that is not a hundred percent polyester. And I'm like, that's not the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Flannel is cotton. Um, So I went to the fabric store. I bought some cute flannel cotton patterns that I liked. Um, Now I'm, you know, working on some nightgowns for my little girl. And then I've been working on her quilt that I started when I was pregnant with her. It's still not done four years later uh, because I was like, you know, depressed for a long time and other, other stuff was going on as well. And so we're like, so in the home stretch and it's over here in this closet. I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, (laughs) just get it out. Just finish it. You're almost done. (laughs) Put it on the girl's bed. She just got a twin bed. You can do it. I'm rooting for you. Thank you. (laughs) It'll be great. You can see a ton of pictures of it on Instagram in progress. It's been a fixture in our our dining room when we were at the loft. Awesome. So what advice would you give to anyone else who's a mother maker out there? I would say keep going. Like do not stop. This thing is not easy. It is, but it is worth it. It is, you know, if you are a creative person, if you are an artist in your heart, like that's never going to stop. That is the thing that is inside of you that needs to come out. And you just have to keep moving forward. Also, your kids are not going to go anywhere. Like they're yours 24 hours a day. My mom was always said. And so find a way to incorporate them into your work and to collaborate. I think that's kind of a joy and a delight of being a mom artist is both showing them how to work because you're their role model and how to value work and creativity. Um, but then like, you know, get some ideas from them. They're, they're interesting little people with, you know, a mind, a will and emotions. They got all kinds of opinions. So like mine that, <laughs> mine that gold. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a joy talking with you and thank you for sharing your birth story and your pregnancy story as difficult as that was. I think 
that it's helpful to so many people to hear those stories because they're just not talked about enough, yeah, you know? Absolutely. It's great to just talk with you. I feel like I'm talking to an old friend. Oh, yay. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> Same. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it for this episode of the Mothermaker podcast. For links and photographs of Mandy's work, visit mothermaker.co slash interviews slash Mandy dash Blinkenship. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter or send me an email with your feedback. You can always connect with me on Instagram and Facebook as well. I always love hearing from you. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Emma Coy. Our web designer and developer is my husband, Jason Coy, and our text editor is my dear friend, Alyssa Zimmerman Exley, a new mom herself. Our music is from David Hillowitz. Until next time, keep making work, mother makers. Thanks for listening. Bravo, take a bow. Take a bow.